Funding for Capital Report is provided by the following. Floridians for Lawsuit Reform. Property insurance rates in Florida have skyrocketed due to dishonest roofers filing unnecessary roof claims, costing Florida homeowners billions. More information on this epidemic and solutions to stopping it can be found at fltortreform.com. From the state capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capital Report. Florida's insurance consumer advocate has some thoughts on what state lawmakers can do to help drive down property insurance rates when they meet next week. There are three things that consumers are most concerned with currently. Availability, affordability, and reliability. Also this week, Florida's Marcy's Law was meant to shield the identities of crime victims, but does that also apply to the police officers who respond to the crime? An on-duty officer who uses force against a suspect is not acting as an individual, rather as an agent of the government. We'll also get some insights into the ongoing fight between Governor DeSantis and State Attorney Andrew Warren and learn how more people are going hungry as the holidays near. I'm Tom Flanagan. This is Capitol Report. Next week, Florida lawmakers will again meet outside the regular legislative session to try to stabilize the state's troubled property insurance market. The legislature passed a few measures aimed at reducing the rising cost of homeowners' insurance when they met in the spring. But legislative leaders say more work is needed. Valerie Crowder spoke with the state's insurance consumer advocate, Tasha Carter, about how lawmakers could best help policyholders. We just had a special session in the spring where some legislation was passed on the issue of property insurance. Can you talk about what some of those changes mean for consumers and what they should be aware of? Sure. There was some meaningful legislation that was passed during the spring special session, and many of the changes really attempted to address some of the factors that are impacting the homeowner's insurance market here in our state and that are resulting in some of the significant consequences that consumers are experiencing, one of which is the Florida Assistance Policyholders Program. For the overall program, there was $2 billion that was made available so that insurance companies can purchase additional reinsurance coverage. One of the factors that is impacting the marketplace over the last several years has been an increase in reinsurance rates. And so, of course, insurance companies have past that increased expense over to their policyholders in the form of increased rates. Another consumer protection that was included was the policies related to roof age. And so, of course, that prohibited insurance companies from canceling or non-renewing a policy or refusing to issue a policy solely based upon the age of the roof. In addition, it allowed those homeowners whose roofs are 15 years of age or older to be able to obtain a roof inspection that identifies the amount of years remaining on the roof and present that to their insurance company as well. From the consumer's perspective, what would you say are the the most meaningful changes that lawmakers could make? Well, I think from a consumer perspective, there are three things that consumers are most concerned with currently. Availability, affordability, and reliability. And so from an availability perspective, I think that policy changes must result in more competition in the marketplace. 
you have more competition, then that's going to present a better set of options for consumers. Also, we want to ensure that as it relates to affordability, whatever policy changes are implemented, it's also going to result in a reduction in insurance premiums. Right now, insurance consumers are experiencing staggering increases as it relates to their homeowner's insurance, and they are in situations where they are having to make difficult decisions on whether to pay their insurance premiums or to purchase food and medicine, you know, and take care of their family. And so those types of significant insurance increases are simply unsustainable for consumers going forward. So any policy changes that are implemented must result in a reduction in insurance rates. And then lastly, when we talk about reliability, six property insurance companies have gone insolvent just this year alone. And so when insurance consumers are able to purchase homeowners insurance and they are able to afford their premium, then they must be able to rely on the insurance company to be able to pay claims, especially in the aftermath of a disaster. Have you heard from any consumers saying that they might have to leave the state if they can't figure out a way to pay for their property insurance? Absolutely. You know, unfortunately, I am hearing that quite often when communicating with insurance consumers who have expressed concern about the cost of their homeowner's insurance policy. Many of the individuals that I speak with have shared that they moved to Florida to spend out the remaining years of their retirement and to enjoy life and to have a a full quality of life. And with the increased cost of, of homeowner's insurance, they're simply not able to do that, especially those consumers who are living on a fixed income. That was Florida Insurance Commissioner Advocate Tasha Carter speaking with Valerie Crowder. The Florida Supreme Court took up an objection to what's called Marcy's Law this week. As Gina Jordan reports, the essence of the argument is that the law shields the identities of police officers as well as crime victims when it comes to public disclosure. This case centers on the law's definition of a person or an individual. Let me begin with the general principle that an on-duty officer who uses force against a suspect is not acting as an individual, rather as an agent of the government. That's attorney Philip Padovano. More from him in a minute. Marcy's Law is a constitutional amendment passed by voters in 2018 that provides a series of protections for crime victims. That includes the right to privacy. In 2020, Tallahassee police shot two suspects in separate incidents. The officers say they had to shoot because their lives were threatened, and that makes them victims. As a result, they don't want their names released under Marcy's law. The officers here were acting uh, in an official capacity by the authority vested in them by the city of Tallahassee. At no time were they acting as on their own behalf as individuals. And so for that reason, they cannot be regarded as persons the way that term is defined in Marcy's law. Padovano represents the city of Tallahassee in its effort to reveal the officers' names. Justice John Curiel pushed back on his assertion. Am I not a person at the moment because I'm wearing this robe? You you are a person and they are persons too, but the question of whether, whether they are persons within the meaning of this law depends entirely upon how that term is is construed within the meaning of the law. 
The city of Tallahassee and news organizations asked the state's highest court to hear the case. They argue that Marcy's law conflicts with a long-standing Government in the Sunshine Amendment that created broad public records laws. And Curiel seemed to try to help Padovano's argument by noting that the officers' names are on their uniforms. If I'm a person and I've disclosed my identity, haven't I waived my rights? Well, <laughs> I think that's a good point. I don't think it's a point anybody made in this case, but uh, I, think th I think I would say that's correct. Attorney Mark Karamanica represents the news organizations. He told the justices a constitutional conflict exists between the policies in Marcy's law and the state's open records laws, and clarity is needed. We've cited a wealth of case law that recognizes the importance of being able to hold government and police action accountable. That needs to be balanced against the um, Marcy's law provisions, which really, as, as uh, my colleague said, are designed to provide rights during the course of a criminal proceeding and and <laughs> balancing those rights really comes down to recognizing that police officers in the scope of their official duties um, do not have victim status under Marcy's law. An appeals court sided with the officers and the Florida Police Benevolent Association, their union. Attorney Luke Newman represents the union and the officers identified as John Doe 1 and John Doe 2. He argued that the language in the law applies to all crime victims. A victim is then defined as a person, which we've discussed, and then there's this long, long mouthful of a person threatened with physical harm or potential harm, and then there, there's an or, and then we get an easier to handle victimization definition. It says a person against whom the crime is committed. No carve out, as suggested by my colleagues, exists, exists in the language. Law enforcement leaders around the state are split on how the law should apply to officers. Sheriffs in Volusia and Pinellas counties filed friend-of-the-court briefs siding with the city's efforts to release the names, while the Palm Beach sheriff took the opposite stance. It could be months before the court issues a ruling. I'm Gina Jordan. Coming up on Capitol Report, the battle between Governor DeSantis and State Attorney Andrew Warren continues in court. Many of the cases that are supposedly, this case is supposedly about will never happen. And a prominent scientist says the trail of Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto took some unexpected turns after he and his men celebrated Christmas in Tallahassee 483 years ago. A federal judge will decide later this month whether Governor Ron DeSantis unjustly suspended Hillsborough's state attorney, Andrew Warren. The twice-elected Democrat sued, saying his First Amendment rights were violated, and a federal trial wrapped up late last week. DeSantis suspended Warren in August over his signing of statements that said he would not pursue criminal charges in cases involving abortion or gender transition treatments. WUSF Steve Newborn talks about the case with Judge Scott Stevens. He's retired from Florida's 13th Circuit Court and is now an adjunct professor at Stetson University College of Law. I don't have anything to do with any of the political stuff, right? I can only tell you that if they set the legal precedent that the governor can basically reject somebody because they say something he doesn't like, that has the potential of affecting the way a lot of cases around the state are dealt with, and it, it might make some of the prosecutors a little bit less comfortable that they have the authority to make their own decisions about who to prosecute and not prosecute in any given case. 
Right. So this is the concept of, of prosecutorial discretion. Uh, you know, like police officers, prosecutors basically have the power to decide whether to charge somebody based on their interpretation of the law. Does that put that whole concept at risk? I don't know that it goes far enough to say it puts that whole concept of prosecutorial discretion at risk. Part of the reason for it is the claim that Mr. Warren abandoned his, his discretion and just decided to follow the hard and fast rule under all circumstances. Warren points out correctly that the time to find out whether he would really exercise his discretion or not exercise his discretion has not arrived. And that uh, so far, all that exists in the public record is some sort of a political pledge to take a certain political position. And I think in one case, if you read uh, Judge Hinkle's earlier order, he, he found that the one thing that Warren said he would do or, or not do had to do with the new abortion law that was passed. So many of the cases that are supposed that this case is supposedly about will never happen. There's no administrative or legal imperative for suspending Warren. So if it's going to be explained at all, it has to be explained as being a political move. All I can do is say that there's no legal reason why it had to be done because nothing, literally nothing had happened. Judge Stevens, if you have a prediction, whether you think uh, the judge will rule on one side or the other, or is it unclear? Well, originally there were two issues, one being the First Amendment issue and the other one being an issue under the Florida Constitution, Article 4. The federal judge correctly dismissed the state law question because you can't adjudicate that particular kind of state law question in federal court because the, the state has sovereign immunity. So that one's gone. Now, the First Amendment case is much harder uh, to predict because we don't have any examples of people who openly discriminate against people because they don't like what they said. And it has had historically been a constitutional principle that all Americans followed and cherished that the government can't take action against somebody because they don't like what they said. Right now, it just looks like he's just trying to retaliate for something that he didn't like. The uh, district judge now, Judge Hinkle, very well-respected person, been there a long time. I would expect he probably would see it things in favor of the plaintiff, in favor of Andrew Warren in this case. But that doesn't decide the case, right? The case is decided by the appeals court, the 11th Circuit in Atlanta. And it's very hard to predict what will happen there because it's a judge that consists of probably a dozen members and every case is decided by a panel of three. And you don't know who's going to be on the panel until you get to the oral argument. So uh, I would give it 60-40 would be my prediction if you ask me about how the trial level stuff is going to come out for the plaintiff and the appeals court. It goes back to 50-50. That was retired Circuit Court Judge Scott Stevens talking about the case involving the governor's suspension of the Hillsborough State Attorney. Stevens is now an adjunct professor at Stetson University College of Law. The holiday season always seems to bring the plight of the less fortunate into sharper relief, and this year is no exception. Every other Saturday, a line of cars stretches across the grounds of the Shady Grove No. 1 Primitive Baptist Church in East Leon County. They're there for the church's bi-weekly food distribution. Last month, the line was 150 cars, and it grows by about 10 households with each distribution. As Margie Menzel reports, the need isn't going away. It is amazing to see the need, uh, but even more to be in a position to, to meet that need, you know, to do something about it. 
Lenoris McFadden is the senior pastor at Shady Grove. He's known as Pastor Mac. He majored in social science at Florida State University. With some of our partners at one point during all this, we did a, a needs assessment and we put you know, food, gas, utilities, help with rent, and shockingly, food was the number one need. That doesn't surprise Monique Ellsworth, the CEO of Second Harvest of the Big Bend. She says it's not uncommon for the food bank to get calls or meet people. Where we hear about mom skipping her meals so that her children don't have to, grandparents skipping their meals so that their grandchildren don't have to. And so what we look to do as a food bank with uh, the partners that we have across our community is to stand in the gap so that families don't have to um, make food the item that they give up to make ends meet throughout the month. Shady Grove is one of those partners. It's nearly 143 years old and has about 350 members. Its food program began as the Harvest Time Food Bank Ministry, in which church members would leave bags of canned food on people's doorsteps. Then in 2017, the church founded Victory House as its 501c3 arm and reached out to Second Harvest and FarmShare for help. Through Second Harvest, we're also kind of one of the crisis centers, so we have to keep certain amounts of food stored here. So that if someone calls 211 and they're in this area and they need food, we're one of the places they come to uh, to receive that food. So especially during those storms and people were displaced. Hurricanes are also a major concern at Feeding Florida, which coordinates the 12 food banks, like Second Harvest of the Big Bend, that covered the state's 67 counties. Executive Director Robin Safley says they're providing support to people displaced or damaged by Hurricanes Ian and Nicole. And then there's inflation, which not only affects the individual households served, but also affects our food bank's ability to purchase food as well as distribution because of gas prices. It's being pushed from both sides. We have more clients to deal with, um, but we also have a higher cost at dealing with them. In fact, there are problems up and down the chain. Donor fatigue, loss of volunteers due to COVID-19, above all, poverty. Second Harvest of the Big Bend serves 11 counties, mostly rural ones, and will gain five more on January 1st. Here's Ellsworth. What we find is that the number of people who are um, living at or below the poverty line, even if we just look at Leon County, which people oftentimes think of as being um, the most wealthy, uh, it's still over half of the population of Leon County is living paycheck to paycheck. Pastor Max says at the start of the pandemic, there were so many cars, roughly 500, that sheriff's deputies would have to direct the traffic backed up from Highway 90. Normally, Victory House has enough acreage that the line doesn't extend off its property. The good news is that much of the food is healthy and fresh. Safley says about 35 to 40 percent of Feeding Florida's distribution is fresh produce or fruits. And Shady Grove has a garden ministry and grows vegetables for distribution. Pastor Max says given the threat of diabetes, the church is very intentional about the food it provides. But Ellsworth says many people cut corners to their detriment. And they do that in a couple of ways. They're going to eat less food. Um, or they're going to begin purchasing food that costs less money. And that usually means that they're going to forego more nutritional food and buy food that's um, highly processed. Um, junk food, unfortunately, is far 
less expensive than nutritious food. The providers are all working overtime and planning ahead. Feeding Florida and Second Harvest are doing nutrition education to help people get more out of the food they receive. The important role that nutrition plays in the stability of a family and how important that is that the food that we distribute as a network is not only the, the healthiest and has the best shelf life it can have, right, um, but it also needs to be um, given to that family in the right quantity um, so that we don't have waste somewhere else. And Victory House will soon have an in-house pantry called Winner's Market. You know, it restores some dignity. Like, you, I'm not in this food drive line. Like, I'm able to come into this little small grocery store type of a place, pick my own food out, get what I want, what I don't want. But it, it, it restores some dignity because it takes a lot to come drive through a, a, a food bag line. But the food banks and their partners train volunteers to respect the dignity of people who need food. That's just a moment in this family's life that it's not defining who they are. It's not highlighting character defects. This is just a tough moment for them. And our responsibility is to be there and stand in that space with them and make sure that they aren't having to eat less or not eat to survive a really difficult time. All the food distributions need volunteers, support, and money. I'm Margie Menzel. It's been two and a half months since Hurricane Ian struck southwest Florida and crossed the state. Cleanup crews have collected more than 23 million cubic yards of debris left by the Category 4 storm. That's roughly enough to fill the Empire State Building more than a dozen times. But many piles remain, and WUSF's Carrie Sheridan reports a couple in Manatee County found a creative way to spruce up theirs. Kathy and David Thomas live in a suburb in Sarasota. It's the kind of neighborhood you'd normally describe as well-manicured. Tidy pastel homes, pristine sidewalks. We have all these beautiful royal palms. Kathy says when Hurricane Ian tore through in late September, they and other trees got a haircut. And other than that, we didn't have any damage to the house. But our friends down in the south certainly did. The Thomases and their neighbors lost palm fronds. Piles about as tall and wide as SUVs lined the streets. A month passed, then another. Thanksgiving came and went. The debris was still there. The Thomas's minds turned to Christmas. And uh, we were just sitting on the porch one night, and I was saying, what do you want to do? How do you want to decorate this year? And I, and I said, I know, I'll decorate the pile up front. And we laughed, and I said, you know what? Let's really do Let's it. Do Let's it. do so it just for fun. David cast white lights over the brown fronds. They put up a sign that says, let it snow, and an American flag on top. To make it look like a boat. Like a boat? <laughs> sailing, sailing the stormy seas. <laughs> a neighbor but, took a uh, picture. A Tampa weatherman posted it on social media, and soon the Thomas's decorated debris was shared thousands of times. I guess it struck a nerve. People are so, they're dying for a smile. Yeah. I mean, good gracious. Yeah. The Thomases say it's about making the best of any pile. In a lot of things in life, right? That it isn't, that you can control the things that come in, but how you deal with it. Yeah, how I are think, you going to react? Yeah, that's a measure of a character of a person, don't you think, right? Yeah, smile. This is so much easier than the other way. <laughs> the Thomases are happy that their decorated debris spread joy, but they were also ecstatic to see it go. Two men in orange vests loaded it and the neighbor's debris into the back of a massive truck and hauled it away. I'm Carrie Sheridan in Sarasota.
You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week, eh, you probably know this story pretty well already. The first Christmas Mass in America was celebrated in 1539 in what is now Tallahassee, Florida. It took place just a few hundred yards down the street from today's state capitol building, and the congregation was made up of a ragtag band of Spanish explorers headed by the infamous fortune-hunting conquistador Hernando de Soto. Well, much about that expedition has remained murky until this guy came along. My name is Dennis Blanton. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at James Madison University. Blanton has made pretty much a career following the trail of DeSoto. You know, for me to come to Tallahassee, it is like a pilgrimage of sorts because this is one of the best documented sites that exists archaeologically for Hernando DeSoto. In fact, we interviewed Blanton on the very site of that famous Christmas Mass so long ago. So we know about DeSoto's Tallahassee encampment in the winter of 1539-1540, just months after he made a landing in Tampa Bay. And we know about his death a few years later. But what the expedition was up to in the intervening couple of years has been a matter of anthropological and historical debate. Blanton has literally been digging into the story. Years ago, when he was working for a museum in Atlanta, Blanton began looking for a mythical Spanish mission in South Georgia. We began our excavations, and within a week we had Spanish artifacts. But those Spanish artifacts were about 100 years too old for the mission. And so all of a sudden, you know, I found myself scratching my head trying to explain why these Spanish artifacts of that vintage were at this place where the mission was supposed to be. Blanton did even more investigation. Today, he has what he says is a pretty definitive answer. Ten years later, you know, I think I can say with a sober face that we probably have a site that DeSoto visited. Now, that wasn't received uh, universally as a, a verified claim. And that's kind of the nature of DeSoto studies. It's a bit fraught territory. Mainly because many researchers were previously of the opinion that DeSoto headed west not too long after leaving Tallahassee. Blanton says his excavations say otherwise. In March of 1540, he began a pretty speedy trek northward, trying to reach this fabled town called Cafodiceki. And he thought, if there's gold and silver anywhere, that's where it ought to be. And his Indian guide had inferred that. His first stop was this Indian territory called Kapacheki, which would be near Albany, Georgia. Meaning the expedition kept to a more northerly course, driven by a determination to find long-rumored cities of gold in North America. And we have found Spanish artifacts of the same sort, I mean, identical material at a place that no one believes that he should have visited. In fact, Blanton alleges DeSoto kept heading north through Georgia and into the Carolinas in an ever more desperate search. And there's no question that DeSoto was feeling the heat. And so when they pulled out of Tallahassee in March of 1540, he really had to find payoff or the whole expedition was in jeopardy. They knew, I mean, they were geologists enough 
to understand that the highest probability for gold or silver would be in the, the mountainous land. But, of course, they never saw it. The Indians in this part of the world favored copper over everything else, much to the great disappointment of DeSoto. And uh, he died a broken man on the banks of the Mississippi, you know, after three years of wandering. A sad conclusion to a tale that began with a storybook Christmas celebration in what would become the capital city of Florida 285 years later. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Steve Newborn and Carrie Sheridan. Technical assistance for Capitol Report comes from Taylor Cox, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Join us again next week for more reports from the state Capitol. Capitol Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee. Funding for Capital Report is provided by the following. Floridians for lawsuit reform. Property insurance rates in Florida have skyrocketed due to dishonest roofers filing unnecessary roof claims, costing Florida homeowners billions. More information on this epidemic and solutions to stopping it can be found at fltortreform.com.